Hello and welcome to the Spiritual School Bus. I'm Mandy Hecht. I'm an ordained minister with the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada, and I drive a school bus. In Baptist churches and on the bus, it seems like everyone wants to sit in the back. You, however, are invited to take a front row seat on the Spiritual School Bus. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, Take the gold off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar to the ca- in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, who you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who have brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them, and then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them on the mountains and wipe them off from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land that I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. May God bless the hearing and the living of the word today. Speaking of this chapter in Exodus, Jewish rabbi wrote this, If this were not written in the text, it would be impossible. But you know, it's not the golden calf part of the story that's so impossible. In fact, to me, that is the most plausible part of the story. Now, we can look at the people of Israel in the worst possible light and be very critical of them here. We could point out all the wonders that they've seen, and not so very long ago, how they've been led in the desert by God's presence, by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day how they walked out of the land of slavery through a wall of water and have seen those in hot pursuit of them drowned in that same water, how they've been mysteriously fed by the bread-like manna from heaven and the quail that was provided to meet their needs. And And though we know that the desert is not really a good place to find water, God, through the leadership of Moses, had looked after that too. They had all they needed on their journey this far. Not only that, but they were standing in one of the most significant places that they would find themselves, the place called Mount Sinai. And there God had been speaking with Moses on and off 
giving him instructions on what it meant to live like God's people here in the world. So Moses going off to speak to God is not totally foreign to them either. Moses has been up and down the mountain at least once by this part in the story. And the first time Moses comes down from the mountain, he asks the people directly for their commitment to following God's words, and they agree wholeheartedly. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And all of that is true, and we can judge this people because they've witnessed these miracles and these events that become the defining moments of their nation for seeming to waste no time at all and quickly turning away, departing, turning aside, even swerving the moment that Moses' back was turned and he was headed up the mountain once again. We can look at their response that way, but maybe that's not quite fair. Because while this group of people has witnessed a number of miracles, the truth is they're still pretty new to their relationship with God. And honestly, life has not been that easy for them in the world. The memory of being held as slaves of Egypt is still very fresh in their minds. I'm guessing some of them still had wounds that had not yet healed into scars from the harsh treatment they had received. It was not so long ago that they feared to bring children into the world and risked having their baby boys snatched from their arms and drowned before their very eyes. In fact, Moses himself had been narrowly saved from that fate, but how many of the people wandering there remember the baby boy that they held too short a time? How many are missing sons that should have been walking with them now? And yes, they had seen miracles, signs, and wonders, and they had been very narrowly, nearly defeated a few times as well, just scraping by with last-minute intervention more than once. And all the while, it was Moses who was at the helm with Aaron at his side. Miriam was around too. But it was Moses who stood there stretching out his arms to part the sea, and it was Moses who asked God about the possibility of getting food in the desert and then meat, when the people were afraid that they would starve. And it was Moses who found out that they could have fresh sources of water, even though they were wandering in a wilderness. And it was Moses who dealt with all the matters of their daily lives before them, someone who could help them solve their disputes and figure out how they could live and work together in this new place. And it was Moses who always took the lead with God. And he had help, but it was Moses who was their ultimate leader always Moses. And now Moses has gone up that mountain, and he said he was going to do that, but we read way back in chapter 23 of Exodus, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So the top of the mountain looks to them like it's on fire, and Moses is somewhere up there, and he hasn't come down for a long time. In fact, the verb translated here, so long, as we read it, has overtones of not just delay and not just being late, but of being shamefully late. And so one writer says that he reads this verb as actually ashamed, because that is overwhelmingly its basic meaning. The point appears to be that from the people's point of view, Moses has deserted them. And though he has made Aaron the temporary leader in his absence, his abandonment of them is somehow shameful, that he is going to just allow them to die at the base of that terrifying mountain as it heaves and thunders with fire and smoke. And so the people are beginning to get nervous and worried. And to be honest, I don't blame them. 
They are still getting to know God, and they've always dealt with God only through Moses. And now Moses is nowhere to be found. He's been up there a good long time. Every day they look for signs of him coming down, and he doesn't appear. Any one of you who's waited for a spouse to come home when they're late from work and haven't called. Anyone who's waited for a child to come home when they've forgotten their curfew. Anyone who's waited for family members or friends to arrive after a long trip who have been delayed, especially in the days before cell phones when they could let you know. You might know what this feels like. At first you feel okay, but then time stretches on and it's harder and harder to keep anxiety from your mind. And you think, what if everything's not all right? Should I be doing something? What even could I do? And your anxiety grows. And so did theirs every day and every hour and every minute that Moses didn't show his face. One writer points out that this is one of those spiritual lessons that we should have no problem identifying with. For if there's anything we have a hard time with in our culture, it's waiting. We have no patience. We expect everything to happen quickly, immediately. I mean, just think back to the moments you've surely had sometime this week when your internet connection started to get a little slow, when your iPhone had a hard time catching a signal, when you sent an email 20 minutes ago and the other party hasn't emailed back. Tick-tock, tick-tock. It's a practice that raises faith to a profound trust that God is working and moving even when things seem to be going nowhere. And that practice is patience. Waiting is a struggle for us too. And we all live with our flaws and our doubts and our faults and our anxieties every single day. We know the precariousness of life in this world. We know how often things do not turn out as we'd hoped or dreamed or planned. We know the struggle it is to trust each and every day when we have a new slot of things that pepper our minds with anxieties. And so did these people. They were just weeks away from having been slaves and from having been chased by an army who was far more powerful than they were, with chariots and horses when all they had were their feet and everything they could carry on their backs. They're still new to their relationship with God, and they've always had Moses to show them what to do. And now Moses has disappeared and they don't even know what's happened to him. If patience with God is a practice, then these people are still learning that practice. In fact, in the action-packed weeks that have preceded this, things moved at a crazy pace. There was something new happening every single day and now they're being called to stop and to wait and to trust when they're not moving forward all of a sudden. They have to learn to wait. And what's more, they have to learn to wait without Moses showing them how to do it. So this is not the impossible part of the story for me, the fact that they got impatient. Because I can see all too easily from my own life and from my own experience that it is hard to trust each and every day. And then it takes practice. And this God continually tests in us. And I'm sure that you're aware that this is the weekend that we set about as Canadians for Thanksgiving weekend. A weekend that we... Practice giving thanks to God for the bounty we have. And like patience, I think that giving thanks and being grateful is something we actually have to work at every once in a while. One writer writes that gratitude, like faith and hope and love and commitment, are not inborn traits that some have and others don't, but rather gratitude is more like a muscle that can be strengthened over time. As you practice giving thanks more and more frequently, and you share your gratitude, you not only grow in gratitude, 
but you create an example for others. More than that, you create a climate in which it's easier to be grateful and to encourage those around you to see the blessings all around us. I'm grateful. Take a moment to scan the headlines and you'll see how scarce and how desperately needed more expressions of gratitude are. Accusations, excuses, venting, anger, those all hold place in our culture. Indeed, we seem to live almost in the age of complaint, whether shared in person or increasingly through the venue of social media. So what a powerful response gratitude is in those situations. In this light, saying, I'm grateful, does not simply express thanksgiving, but gives a voice to a countercultural witness that has the power to shape those around us and push back the tide of resentment and complaint that ails us and make room for a fresh appreciation of all God has done for us, of God's renewing and saving grace. So being patient with God, waiting on God, recognizing all the good things that God has done for us, committing to remember those good things, all of those are muscles that we need to exercise, especially if we wish to avoid breaking God's heart the way the people of Israel did at the base of Sinai, trading the worship of the God who brought them out of Egypt for that of an image that was fashioned before their very eyes. There's an oft-repeated phrase in this story. It's here five times in these verses to make sure that we're paying attention, and that's this phrase, who brought us up or who brought them up out of Egypt. And this is one of the keys for interpreting this story. And the first time we hear it, it is the people of Israel who say it. They say, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now that statement tells us a number of things, but one thing it emphasizes is that Moses has been for these people the very representation of God. And now they don't know what's happened to him. He's nowhere to be found. One writer says the following in his book, the most devious and dangerous idol is the one we embrace when we replace the wild and unpredictable Yahweh with a God we can understand and a God who serves our deep need to feel safe certain, and in control. And that's exactly what it seems to be happening here. This is a people who needs to feel safe and certain and in control, and they've been none of those things for a very long time. Perhaps they've never felt those things in their lives, considering that they've just come out of the land of slavery. And so when Moses, the one who made them feel safe, the one that they have looked for for so long, the one who stands in their eyes in the place of God has disappeared. They seek to replace the wild and unpredictable Yahweh with something they could see and something they could touch and something they could control and something they finally understood, which of course we know is an idol or a false god. Depending on who you talk to, the people of Israel either broke the first commandment, you shall have no gods before me, or the second, you shall not make yourselves, uh, for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven on, above or on earth below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Perhaps they broke both. Not to mention that the Ten Commandments themselves start with the statement, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's in Exodus 20. So they didn't even get that first statement right, having just attributed the act of deliverance to Moses. The people, in their need to feel safe and certain and in control, end up making for themselves an idol that they can see and touch. 
But this is so very human, so very like us. We cannot read this story with any judgment in our minds until we have examined our lives for all the places where we have done just that too. Says one writer, do we not regularly hedge our bets in a similar way? Surely a little nation worship can rest easily with a little Yahweh worship. I praise each Sunday the God from whom all blessings flow, but on Monday I check the market to see if my retirement is secure. I pray to God who made the sea and all that is in it, but I live as if God's good creation will last forever just as it is, even if I contribute to the fouling of the seas and the heating of the land. Jesus said you cannot worship God and gold, and he was surely right. No, what the people did when they insist that Aaron make the golden calf is all too understandable because we do the same thing all the time. We find a way to hedge our bets, to have it both ways. We find things that make us feel safe, certain, and in control, even if that thing we find looks nothing at all like the wild and unpredictable Yahweh. What is impossible in this story, though, is that when the people did this, when they turned so quickly away, when they began to worship their idol the minute Moses went up the mountain, when they needed more time to learn the art of being patient and waiting on the Lord, when they took stock of their own problems and gave in to their own worries instead of remembering God's faithfulness, which really should have been so fresh in their minds, when they failed at this very crucial moment in the story, what it seems impossible is that that is not the end of the story. Because this failure did indeed sting. It did indeed break the heart of the God who had traveled with them so far, whose arms had carried them to this place. And we read that God's wrath was pricked, kindled, ignited even. And there was a moment when it seemed best to God to do what God had done in the past, to wipe out the people and start again. That's what happened with Noah and the flood. God seems to offer to Moses the chance to be the new Abraham. God says, I'm going to wipe out these people and start again with you. You'll be the one who will be a great nation. Your, and your descendants will call God their God. Your descendants will be God's people. What is so impossible in this moment is grace. And yet that is indeed what happens. This incident, in fact, becomes the model and the pattern for what we see over and over again when the people falter and fall and fail. God restores the people again, and not necessarily because they deserve it, but because of God's character as gracious and merciful. It's kind of hard to know what to make of the fact that God tells Moses, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. But it's even harder to know what to make of the fact that it is through Moses' entreaties, through Moses seeking the goodwill of God, that Moses appeased or tried to pacify and implored the Lord his God, that it is through Moses that God's anger is turned aside. How do we process the fact that God shows such a quick temper and even expresses a desire to wipe the people of Israel off the face of the earth? Perhaps it is even more inexplicable that the God who created the entire world and just went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh and who parted the Red Sea and who stands on top of Mount Sinai looking for all the world like a blazing fire, that God, having expressed such desire, would decide to relent. 
Indeed, what is most impossible about this story is that God changes God's mind. God relented, or even in some translations, God repented. The shock and impossibility of this leads one writer to suggest that maybe we should discontinue referring to this text as the golden calf incident and begin calling it the God who changes God's mind at the request of Moses incident. She says, I do think the more shocking and profoundly hopeful news here is that God sticks with us. God continues to claim us as God's own despite it all. Instead of God's wrath burning hot against us and consuming us, God's beloved son reminds us that there is joy when even one sinner repents. What is impossible, perhaps, is that God actually pauses between his expression of burning wrath and then what God ends up doing. Somewhere this week, and I don't remember exactly where, but I was reminded that God didn't actually have to pause here. God didn't have to tell Moses what he wanted to do. In the words of one writer, God is really opening it up to this space for a God that is neither a tyrant nor a statue. God says to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn against them, as if this is only possible if God is alone. Maybe God hopes that Moses won't leave him alone. Maybe God doesn't actually want to be left alone. Maybe God really does love the people deeply and passionately. And this whole scene demonstrates the possibility that God is a God who is vulnerable and who feels and who invites relationship. God desires God's people and they desire the golden calf. And God feels it. And Moses presses for God's desire because God is deeply affected and the covenant between God and God's people somehow endures through the mess of anger and hurt and passion. As Cree poet Billy Ray Belcourt has said, to love someone is firstly to confess, I'm prepared to be devastated by you. The seemingly possible in the impossible in this story is that God is prepared over and over again to be devastated. Not because God doesn't really care, but precisely because God's care and love and desire for the people is so very profound. Somehow, someway, mercy and grace win the day. We, like the Israelites, are not done being impatient with God when God seems slow to do what we would have God do. We're not done turning away toward idols who capture our worship instead of the one true God. We're not done forgetting and probably forgetting quickly all the ways that God is for us and giving into fear and anger and frustration and grief and regret and apprehension. We're not done with any of those things, and yet God is not done forgiving us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Faithful God, we come before you today, grateful for your many gifts to us. Most especially, we thank you today for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are faithful even when we do not keep the faith. For the, like the people in the Exodus story, we so often turn to other gods and other places to seek acceptance and power and independence. We ask that you would show us how to live humbly in you. We ask you for hearts to express our thanksgiving for all that you've done. We ask for eyes to see the ways that you are faithful to us each and every day. We ask for the courage to walk in your ways because we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.
This has been the Spiritual School Bus. Thank you for listening. For more Spiritual School Bus, visit www.pastormandy.com. This recording is copyright 2020 by Mandy Hecht and may only be copied or redistributed by express written permission. Thank you and have a blessed week. As you go this week, may the Lord bless and keep you. May God make God's face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the broad expanse of God's love and the abundance of God's riches and glory shape your perspective on your own life and needs, including those things that disappoint you. May the eyes of your heart be open to all the blessings which surround you. And may this awareness produce a harvest of generosity in your spirit. May thankfulness rise within you, not just during this short season, but day after day, from the early morning watch until you retire for the night. May your prayers reflect gratitude while also acknowledging the needs of others whose situations are so drastically different than ours. May the thoughts of Jesus fill your mind, a hunger for God drive your soul, and love for God guide your speech and actions. And finally, may the grace and peace and love of the triune God protect, defend, and empower you to run with perseverance the race marked out before you. Amen. Go in peace.